0: Floods and stuns, how two of the worst stories in the Bible tell us one of the best things about God. Um, so yeah, I'm going to take two stories that seem uh, very primitive, barbaric, um, and awful, and uh, talk about how actually they're really progressive, revolutionary, and show us something really beautiful about the heart of God. Um, but I've kind of been laughing recently how, like, the Old Testament is 100%. Jam. Wait, oh, jam. Yeah, that's good. That's what I'm uh, about to talk about. Jam, go. Go out, jam. Jam on. <clears throat> jam on. This is what I was going to talk about. The The Old Testament is, like, 100% rated R. Um, yeah, we're like, <laughs> gather round, children. <laughs> You see these cute animals in this boat? Let me tell you a story about how God destroys the entire world, right? Uh, I guess they're okay. I mean, they seem unfazed by it. Ryan goes to a, a little church for uh, preschool, and she was taking her stuff out of her folder and showing Tyler stuff they had done that week. And she had one of Joseph's coat, and she had stuck little pieces of colored paper on there for his rainbow coat. And she goes, God... And Tyler was like, oh, cool, Uh, tell me about that. And she was like, this is God's shirt. (laughs) And I was like, no, that's Joseph's shirt. And right after he got it, his brothers threw him in a ditch and sold him into slavery. So (laughs) you better think about asking for a rainbow coat. These are meaningful lessons from the Old Testament for our children um so let's go to the next slide we'll talk about our structure so we're going to talk a bit about stories uh about the flood then we'll go to abraham almost killing his own son we'll jump ahead to jesus um i'll talk about an experience that john had in revelations and then we'll talk about what all of that tells us about the heart of god uh but i'm going to go ahead and open with a prayer God, I thank you for letting us be here together. I thank you for this community. I thank you that we get to do life together and that you promise to be with us in that. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the scripture. And I pray that we would be good readers of it, that we would know um, what you're trying to communicate through that and what your people were trying to communicate through that um, and that that would draw us closer to you and make us better partners for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first, a bit about stories. <clears throat> not the flood story, but a flood story. So you may or may not know this, but um, our flood story in Genesis is one of many flood stories in the ancient world. There's one flood story in particular, the Ekep- Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a fun name to say, Gilgamesh, um, that the Israelites likely knew of, Um there's reason to believe they would know of that, uh, and it's very similar to our flood story. So the gods get angry, they get annoyed at people for being too loud, and they decide to destroy the whole world. Uh, one god tips this one guy off about it, and so he builds a big boat, and he gathers on there other people and animals, and he's, you know, in this flood for a long period of time. Uh, He even sends out these different birds to check and see if the waters receded. Um, And then uh, at the end, him and the people on the boat were saved. And the first time that I heard that, it like really freaked me out um, because I was like, oh, my gosh, like, does this mean that our biblical story is not true? Uh, But one thing that we have to understand is that they communicated very differently than we do. Uh, they commuted truth much communicated truth much differently than we do. We like our introduction, our points with supporting evidence for our points, and we like a good conclusion that tells us exactly the things that we're supposed to think and believe. But that's not how they did things. They used story, and the, everybody around them used story to communicate truth and it makes a lot of sense because stories hit you at a different place than mere logic does it hits you at a deeper place Um, they're also easy to understand they're easy to remember they're easy to repeat and to pass on Um, so it made a lot of sense and we see jesus using the same tool over and over and over again these stories to communicate truth So if we want to know what these ancient civilizations believed and thought about the world, they didn't have textbooks for us to pick up. We would need to look at their stories to understand what they believed. So for instance, the Babylonians also have a creation story, uh, but their creation story is about two gods that got in a fight. One god beat the other one and then used the carcass of that god to create the earth. And so no wonder the Babylonians were a violent people because violence was baked in to the way they saw the very creation of their world. And that's why the Hebrew creation story is so powerful and so beautiful, because this God is so very different than the other gods. And I think particularly in Genesis 1 through 11, scholars pretty much agree Genesis 1 through 11 is written differently than the rest of Genesis. And so I think at least some of what the author is trying to do here is take these common stories of their day, make powerful changes, and express a new truth, a different truth about their God, the one true God, in the language that their culture would have understood. So it'd be much like if I took a common story of our day, like the big bad wolf and the three little pigs, but then at the end, when the big bad wolf gets to the third little big pig's house, he huffs and he puffs, but the third little pig opens the door and says, would you like to come in and have a cup of tea? And the big bad wolf comes in and says, yes, I would. And they sit down and they talk, and the big bad wolf isn't quite so bad anymore. You see what I did there? I took a common story that has a point and a lesson but I made a a big twist that you would know because you know and are familiar with the story. And I communicated a different truth about how maybe instead of trying to keep people out, uh, if we opened the door and offered friendship and hospitality, maybe we would make some bigger changes. Does that kind of make sense? So that was their primary method of communication. That's not our primary method. So it makes sense for them to take this primary method of communication Um, and use those to express the truth to their culture. So when we come to the flood story, certainly we can argue about, did this actually happen or not? Um, And and people can certainly point out some pretty big flaws to the story of how unlikely it would be if it actually happened exactly as the writer says. But I don't think that that actually matters that much. I think that we do that and then we miss the point of the story. Maybe a huge flood happened. Maybe it didn't. It seems like something probably did happen because so many nations wrote something down about a flood. Um, But who really knows? Um, Ultimately, I think the author was taking this common story, um, making some, some changes, this common view of the gods of their day. And making purposeful changes to express how different and how awesome the one true God is. So I might have uh, opened a can of worms for some of you um, and I don't really have time to work all of that out. Um, so I'm sorry to leave you there. Um, I would love to talk about it more though, if you're like, oh my gosh, what the heck is she talking about? Um, I'd love to talk about it more and kind of flesh that idea out with you and where we see these different instances. Um, that's not what I can do right now, but I did feel like I at least in going into this flood story needed to lay a little bit of a groundwork about what they were doing with stories, about taking genre seriously, looking at what the writer was actually trying to do and try to express in it, and really keep our eyes open for what differences do we see in this story. Okay, enough about that. So let's go to the actual story. You'll find it in Genesis 6 through 9. Um, I'm not going to read it all because you know this story. You're probably pretty familiar with it. Um, But I want to bring out some key points, some key differences um, that they would have noticed in their day. So first, in Genesis 6.6, it says that God's heart is deeply troubled. And I think that's an interesting difference because in these other stories of the gods, the gods are usually angry or they're just annoyed. And it's all for selfish reasons. But this God is deeply troubled. Does anybody know why this God is deeply troubled? Anybody remember why God is deeply troubled? Disobedience of the people. It says... The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And he goes on to specifically say that the earth was full of violence. Remember in the epic of Gilgamesh, why the gods were upset? Do you remember what I said? The people were too loud. Do you see the difference? The gods were angry and annoyed that people were too loud. But this God, the God of the Israelites, is deeply troubled because every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart are only evil all the time and the earth is full of violence the gods that people knew up until that point were selfish. It was all about them. Humans were just pawns meant to serve their whims and they would get annoyed and angry with humans often. But this God, this God can't bear to see humans hurt other humans. And just as William talked last week, this God hears the cry of injustice and he won't put up with it forever. And sometimes we have a problem with texts like this of God wiping out um, whole groups of people. Um, but, th- but this God is not okay with an injustice and he won't put up with it forever. And that's how we want God to be. We have a trouble with wrath texts, but that's how a good God is. How do we want God to feel about rape? How do we want God to feel about murder? How do we want God to feel about people harming and taking advantage of your children? We don't want a God to say, oh, gosh, well, everybody sins. No, (laughs) we want him upset and we want him to do something about it. And it's kind of ironic because that's so many of our cries to God now. God, why won't you do anything about this? Why won't you do anything about this evil? But then when we go to texts like this, we get upset that he did something (laughs) about these things. But one thing we need to make sure and understand is that these weren't just decent, normal human beings just doing their best day to day and messing up from time to time. The text wants you to know that this is a bad group of people. Every inclination is evil all the time. Was only evil all the time. The earth was full of violence. And we don't want God to turn a blind eye to this. So, this God isn't selfish. He cares about people deeply and he will do something about injustice in time. And that's a good thing. And then there's another twist to this story, and it comes at the end. God puts something in the sky. What does God put in the sky? A rainbow. Okay, but in Hebrew, they didn't have a word for rainbow. All it says in Hebrew is bow. God put his bow in the sky. So what's a bow? A bow and arrow. Yeah, there we go. Which way is the bow and arrow facing? Up. Who is that towards? Towards God. What kind of God turns a bow on himself? God places the bow facing himself and then promises to never bring that kind of damage on humans again. This would have been mind-blowing in their time. What kind of God would do something like that? A God that turns a bow on himself. And then further, this God makes a covenant with Noah after all of this. <clears throat> a covenant with a human, a partnership, a relationship. And remember, in their worldview, humans were pawns. They were nobodies. And so a God that wants a relationship with a human, well, that's a new kind of God. So let's go to another awful story that tells us something awesome about God. Genesis 22 it, uh, I don't know what verse. It says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there. We read this and say, A God that does what? <laughs> A God that asks you to sacrifice your child? But again, we need to put ourselves in their shoes and see how they would have read this story. So they were familiar with sacrifices. That's what they did for the gods. Their neighboring nations had lots of gods um, and made lots of sacrifices. And this came about because people quickly realized that there were things going on in the world that they had no control over. Things that had dramatic impacts on their life, like whether they lived or died. And so they knew... We need the sun to to shine the exact amount, not too much and not too little. And we need the rain to fall the exact amount, not too much and not too little. And if it didn't, what happened? And so they figured, oh, well, there's somebody controlling the sun. There's a sun God and there's somebody controlling the rain. There's a rain God and we need to make sure they're happy. And so they started giving these gifts to the gods to make them happy. And if the rain didn't fall as much as they needed to, then... Oh, that, the God's not happy. We didn't give them enough. Let's give them more. And if the sun shined the right amount, oh, well, we need to thank the sun god so that the sun god doesn't get angry with us. So let's give a thanks offering. And naturally, this kind of got out of hand because when things don't go right, we need to give more and more and more. This must not have been enough. What more can we give? And what's the most that someone could possibly give a human sacrifice. And so began a horrible, horrible practice of giving over a child to the gods. And so if you read this story, you'll notice that Abraham isn't shocked. He doesn't argue. He doesn't question. He doesn't do anything. He just starts this process because that's what the gods ask of you. And so this starts out like a fairly familiar story in their day because this is what the gods are like. This is where that leads. But this story also has a twist because Abraham grabs the knife and God calls out to him. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. And when he looks up, there's a ram for him to sacrifice instead of his son. And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. A God that does what? <laughs> That's what they would have been saying. A God that does what? This God stops the sacrifice? Sacrifices are about you giving to this to the gods, but this God gives to you? God is saying loud and clear to Abraham and to the Israelites in this story, I am not like those other gods. I will provide the sacrifice. Which leads us to Jesus, who did offer his only son, whom he loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life <clears throat> there's a scene in revelations 4 and 5 where john is invited up into heaven and he's in the middle of this grand display um there's a a throne in the middle and the one in the throne it says is is shining or has the appearance of Jasper and Ruby and there's a rainbow encircling the throne and around that is 24 other thrones with elders in them and they're dressed in white and they have gold crowns on their head and from the throne comes flashes of lightning and thunder and in front of the throne are these seven blazing lamps and a sea that looks like glass. There's creatures hovering around the throne that look like different animals, but they have six wings and they have eyes all over their body. And it says day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And the elders are, are falling before the throne, worshiping, laying their crown at the throne. And the one on the throne is holding a scroll with seven seals. And an angel says in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And John says that he wept and wept because no one was worthy to open the scroll. But then one of the elders says, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. And it says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. From the beginning at the heart of God has been a sacrificial lamb. Not because he's weak. The lamb that John sees has seven horns. And that represents this complete strength. This absolute power. We see in the flood God's strength and power. We see all through the Old Testament God's strength and power. He is not weak. He is all powerful. But he is ever willing to sacrifice himself on behalf of us. And I kept trying to think about how to wrap this up. Okay, what are all the implications? And what are the the practical applications to this? But I just couldn't. Anything I came up with just felt really trite. Except that it's important for us to understand this. And I was flooded with these stories of Jesus. Of Jesus on his last night getting on his knees holding the feet of people that were going to betray him in his moment of greatest need and washing the dirt and grime off of each one of them. A job that a master couldn't even ask a servant to do because it was so lowly. I think of a tired Jesus, tired from helping and healing people, asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm that's about to wreck shop. And even allowing himself to be awakened in those moments to help again. I think of Jesus being stopped by a man with leprosy who had no business being anywhere near him. And this man desperately saying, if, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaching out his hand and saying, I am willing. I think of Jesus up on the cross Not only was he bearing our sins, but while on the cross, he accomplished so much for other people. On the cross, he asked God to forgive the people that were killing him. On the cross, he arranged care for his mother and entrusted her to John. On the cross, he forgave the thief next to him and promised him paradise, all while he was on the cross, still thinking about others. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. We often read the Old Testament and we come away with this view of God that he's harsh and mean and scary and angry. And what a disservice to God how unfair how messed up is that we certainly should come away seeing that God is not weak that he's all-powerful that he cares about injustice and evil and he is able and willing to deal with it decisively we definitely should come away with that but we should see all of those things through the eyes of a child looking up at their father, that would do absolutely anything for us. That's who he is and who he always has been. And if we don't see that, we'll never be able to take his hand in trust and walk with him in the kind of relationship that he seeks to have with each one of us. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. And once again, this God is different Than other gods. He wants a relationship. He wants a partnership. He wants to walk side by side with you in this life. But we'll never be able to do that if we don't trust him. But we can trust him. We can trust this God. He points the bow at himself. He provides the sacrifice. He is gentle and humble in heart. He is the lamb that was slain. He is also the lion of Judah, and he wants to walk with you. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your revelation. I just thank you that you're not like the other gods, (laughs) that you're not like these gods that humans make up to make look like us, but that you are different, that you are full of love and grace and sacrifice and kindness. And I pray that we would all trust you and walk with you and be good partners. Amen.